Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast dedicated to Scottish food and drink. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and every fortnight I'll be chatting to some of the best-known names, artists and producers, and brewers and distillers in this diverse industry. From master blenders to local pub owners and celebrated chefs, Scran is your ultimate guide to eating and drinking your way around Scotland. Coming up... Following on from last episode's coronavirus chat and tips for restaurant survival, Nick Nairn is back to discuss his colourful career as a young Michelin-starred chef turned TV star. There have also been a few star-studied dinners along the way. Enjoying cooking came quite late to me. Enjoying eating happened earlier, and it was when I was travelling in the Merchant Navy. I was navigating office in the Merchant Navy. This week, I'm also joined by father and son Billy and Alistair Walker to talk all things whiskey. Billy has been in the industry for over 40 years and is the co-owner and master blender at the Glenallachie in Speyside. The process of maturing the whisky, the styles of wood. I mean, if you're familiar with the expectation of what all of these things can do, it's a very important part of the master blender or the blender experience. Well, son Alistair has recently set up his own independent bottling business. So it's just kind of, I, I fell into it sort of by accident, but... Once I got into it, I really enjoyed it. And to me, it's it's one of those industries that it's a very, I mean, it's quite a lot of fun. It's very sociable. And I think that's why when people get into it, they, they tend not to leave it. Nick Nairn is also back with his cooking tips. This time, it's how to make the perfect pasta. 200 grams of flour, sifted, one whole egg, medium, three yolks, medium, and work that together until you get a really tight dough. Welcome back to Scran, which is still being recorded at home under lockdown. We are starting to see some light at the end of this, this tunnel as some restaurants and bars have revealed their plans to reopen and many Scottish hotels are giving dates in July for opening their doors too. While we won't know for sure yet if these plans can go ahead, it's nice to see that life, maybe not as we know it, is going to return to some kind of normality soon. Until then, there's still plenty of good Scran to be enjoying at home. I've been continuing my home baking, which I talk more about later, and it's been great getting cooking tips from Nick Nairn. This week's is ideal for budding chefs and I'm definitely going to try it, although whether or not it'll be a success, I've got no idea. Speaking of Nick Nairn, if you've ever wondered what it's like to cook for the Queen and a range of Prime Ministers, then he's the man to talk to. So I did, a few weeks ago. You've mentioned a few times you've been in the industry for 35 years, so if we could go right back to the start, what's your earliest memory of enjoying cooking? Enjoying cooking came quite late to me. Enjoying eating happened earlier and it was when I was travelling in the Merchant Navy. I was a navigating office in the Merchant Navy. And my, my first love of food was in the Far East and it was definitely Asian food, satay and nasi goreng and noodles and, uh, you know, curries and chicken tikka and tandoori food, you know, that I, did, that I tasted in the 70s, you know, when you just, that didn't exist in the UK. Nobody really did anything other than a kind of Indian and Chinese reps and tend to be where you went after the pub for a takeout or to have a few more pints of beer. So that 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 kind of blew my mind because my, my dad was not a great uh, gastronome. He liked his food, but he didn't like 
herbs, spices, garlic, you know, um, any of that foreign stuff. Be like good wholesome Scottish food. So when I tasted all this uh, stuff in 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 Asia, it blew my mind, and that's what really sparked my interest in food. But it wasn't until I bought a flat in the West End of Glasgow that you know, I picked up a frying pan, a wooden spoon, and chucked some stuff in the pan, and hey, presto, it actually tasted okay. But the first time I really enjoyed cooking, yeah, it was probably the first dish I ever cooked because it, I, it surprised me, you know, that it was it was better than than it than it should be. And then later on, you know, there were breakthrough moments where you know suddenly you realised that you could cook and could cook properly. And I went and worked for. Or other people and came back and, and brought different ideas and things and you know the whole thing accelerated so well, I opened Brave Isle in 1986 and I got a Michelin star in 1991 I did then five years from a standing star I was the youngest chef in Scotland ever to get a star at that point and that was all very exciting I have to say that was that was a that was kind of heady time and then I, I did sort of 10 really hard years after that of, of working really hard and really teaching myself how to cook from from sort of you know the late 80s um through into the to, to the late 90s that was my sort of creative uh period but i started doing tv in 1994 and uh, i did three series of my own show island harvest and wild harvest and i started doing ready steady cook which back in the day was a huge program i mean it was the biggest rating program on on television not just daytime television on television i mean we used to get 12 13 million viewers um for celebrity ready steady cook um which was just phenomenal i mean it was it was we did that i did that for 14 years we made 1986 programs and it was just you know it was an amazing time and because I did all that TV, other things happened. I did lots of other TV projects and stuff and co-presented stuff. That's how my career advanced. It was restaurants, you know, hand in hand with TV and, and, and media stuff, writing. And a lot of books, nine books. Oh, wow. <laughs> and <laughs> so when you won your Michelin star at a young age, did you find... There's been quite a lot in the press over the last couple of years about the, the pressure that comes with that to, to keep it once you have it. Did you find that or did you just find that it opened quite a lot of doors and sort of focused your mind to, like, as you say, get more creative with your cooking? Uh-huh. Well, back then, you know, when I got a star, there was only 23 stars in the whole of the UK. I think there's hundreds now. So it was much more in the spotlight then and there, was, there did feel like a huge amount of pressure. But it did open a huge amount of doors. It was definitely, it was the making of, of me when I got that. And it absolutely, opening doors is the right word because it takes you into a new world where you, people take you seriously and they'll talk to you. And, you know, so I went and worked some great kitchens and, and, and learned a lot, an awful lot in that period, which I would never have had the opportunity to do if I hadn't got a star. And obviously you said before yeah, that you were in the Merchant Navy. What was that like and how did you transition from that into cooking? Well, I, I went to university to study chemical engineering and uh, I, 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 I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, to be fair, it hated me. And so I, I kind of, I wanted to travel. Um, I wanted to broaden my horizons. And I was just walking down the street in Glasgow and then I saw this advert for Merchant Navy uh, cadets, you know, training officers. And... It just seemed the right thing to do. I, was, I get paid for traveling. 
And I was extraordinarily lucky. The company I worked for, a small company called, well, not a small, medium-sized company called Scottish Ship Management, had geared bulk carriers, low-draft geared bulk carriers. Probably means nothing to you, but it means that we could go into little ports and we could discharge ourselves so we could go off the beaten track. And so I, I went all over Asia and India and Indonesia and Malaysia uh, and, and discovered, you know, completely different world. And I loved it. I, I mean, it's very hard work. You know, sometimes I was away for 10 months, working seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day. But it never felt, you know, onerous. It, it was always kind of fun. And I love being at sea. I love just the whole thing. I love the discipline. I love boats. I love the way boats move, the way they smell, the way they vibrate, the way they take you places. You know, I, 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 I had a fantastic experience in, in the American Navy. Really tremendous. And then when you came out, how did you, you know, you're saying you cooked, your, you cooked a meal and it worked out well, and that's what kind of sparked your enjoyment of cooking, but was yeah, well, I could I could see this is back in the 80s. Um, so the, the British Merchant Navy was starting to crumble at the edges. A lot of companies were flagging out. So they were no longer headquartered in the UK. They would headquarter in Monrovia or the Bahamas or somewhere. And I went a few months without getting paid after we flagged out. And I thought, oh, this is all pretty sketchy stuff. I, I can't see a future here. And I made the decision I was going to come ashore. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I loved food. And I, I met my first wife, Fiona, who was working in a restaurant in Glasgow. And we had a boozy lunch in the ubiquitous chip uh, in Glasgow. And we decided that we were going to do this. We were going to become restaurateurs. Um, that took a couple of years to come to uh, fruition because, first of all, we were looking to try and do something in Glasgow. But we just couldn't afford the rent. Um, eventually found this old derelict mill out in Aberfoyle and I physically spent 18 months doing it up. I mean, I did, I, I, I rebuilt it myself with, with the help of a local builder. Um, I couldn't have done it without, but it was just really the two of us. But we, you know, we put the roof on, I cut the slates, we did the plumbing, which never really worked very well. And, um, you know, we, it, it, it was, it was, again, that was another great period of life. I really enjoyed the hard graft. Of, of working effectively on a building site and creating, you know, the restaurant Brave Isle was pretty special. I mean, everybody has a kind of misty eye moment about Brave Isle, my first restaurant, because, you know, a huge amount of love, passion and care went into that. And uh, so it's sort of basically started, some of the best ideas come from a boozy lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the ubiquitous ship. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, I lived across the road in Roxburgh Street, um, so it was literally 300 yards. Um, so I kind of lived in the chip when I was at home uh, on leave for the Merchant Navy. Um, and I just loved the kind of like bohemian sort of atmosphere. The food by then was fantastic. Uh, an amazing wine list. Um, loved the bar. Furstenberg on tap. Um, what, what was not to like? And um, you've cooked for some famous people, including the Queen. Is that right? Yeah. yeah just uh, to, um, was how did that come about, and was it quite nerve wracking? Uh, well, cooking for the Queen was because I did the first series, of the Great British Menu, and I won main course and uh, the dessert. I actually won both two courses, but only to do one. Um, so I did the main course, and yeah, it was it was it wasn't without incident. I did lose a fingernail somewhere that. Uh, Luckily, I don't think it ended up in the, the no. royal platter. 
And I, I, I spoke to the Queen afterwards, although we've been told not to address her. I, I'd met her once before and, 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 and hadn't spoken to her. And I thought, well, this is probably the last chance I'll get. And so I kind of engaged her in conversation. You could see people going, oh, my God, the voice <laughs> is talking. But she was very nice and very pleasant and said she'd enjoyed it, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I, I, I cooked for uh, I cooked for her, and uh, obviously, you know, the, her husband was there, the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, but I've cooked for most prime ministers since Maggie. Cooked for Maggie a couple of times. I cooked for Tony Blair quite a lot. Did quite a lot of stuff with Tony Blair. I used to think he was quite a good guy, but that didn't work out too well. Uh, although I do, do think he was very well-intentioned, and I thought New Labour was the the dawn of something amazing. Mm. Uh, it just didn't kind of work out that way. Then. Uh, who else have I cooked for? John Major. I cooked for him. Never cooked for, uh, what's his face? The one that's just gone. Or Boris. I haven't cooked for either of them. David Cameron or Boris. David Cameron. I met him a couple of times, but uh, never cooked for him. So, uh, yeah, I, lots of, lots of, lots of uh, famous people, lots of uh, wealthy individuals, some who can't be named because, <laughs> the, yeah, there was a period, I think, when, you know, I was on kind of almost mainstream television, but still a chef, that people would pay quite a lot of money for me to rock up, you know, in New York or in uh, uh, Japan or South America or Portugal. I cooked some amazing dinners all over the place. And then I, I worked with uh, Chivas Regal um, oh, yeah. when it was still owned by Diageo. And we did some amazing parties, you know, and we had presidents and supermodels and all kinds of people. And it was good fun. I, I enjoyed that. Sounds good fun. Yeah. <laughs> and how did um how did the cooking for the prime ministers come about? Do they just get in touch and say like, can you cook this meal? And did anyone have any weird like things they wanted uh, you to cook? No, uh, they were all different. Maggie um, was big friends with Michael Scythe, who had a house not far from Brave Isle. So he he wanted she was coming to stay with him, and they they, they wanted to eat. Um, so they used the restaurant, which which hacked off the neighbours because they shut all the roads and the helicopters and men in the sewers and things. It was just like, it was a complete lockdown. And Tony Blair, how did that come about? Um, I think he his guys asked me to do something and then I met him. I met Alistair Campbell, Angie Hunter, and we did some stuff out in Shanghai. We did an expo out there. Um, they came to the restaurant in Glasgow. I had Nairns in Glasgow at that time. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was that was that was a pretty exciting time, I have to say. When Nairns opened, Nairns was just like this. It burned very brightly for quite a short period of time. I think we opened in '97, something like that. '97 to 2000. Yeah, we shot I think in 2000, and it was just the place to be in Glasgow. Every full lunch dinner booked out months in advance. It was proper rock and roll, and that was a good. That was a good period. That was a good period. Nairns was uh, was was fab. Bit chaotic, not particularly well controlled on a business sense, but lots of fun. And um, you said that you were on Ready Steady Cook, and you've done quite a few TV shows. Um, would you say you had a favourite of of any of the ones you've been on? Oh, uh, yeah, my own series, <laughs> Wild Harvest. Island Harvest was a brilliant program. I absolutely loved that. So I, I took a yacht from Oban up to up to way out to the to the top of Lewis and Harris, and uh, that was an amazing opportunity, amazing experience, and probably one of the best food experiences I've ever had. The produce was just off the scale, brilliant. Uh, I, I enjoy working with James Martin at the moment. I've done a couple of his recent shows. In fact, we were on last week together. 
Um, we were on the, the Royal Scotsman heading up to uh, the Cairngorms and then we went white water rafting up the Cairngorms, which was good. Um, went and fed some reindeer and <laughs> took some food. And I liked doing, I, I, I tell you what, I love doing James Bond Saturday morning uh, show. It is brilliant. It's the easiest telly because Saturday Kitchen was a very early call time. I think it was half five oh, wow. pickup. For, for six o'clock at the studio or six and a half, six, can't remember. But we did a full rehearsal before the 10 o'clock news. And then we would do, you know, live to 10 o'clock news. And then you do it all again to do the show. So by the time you got to the end of it, you were, you were kind of knackered. Mm-hmm. Whereas James's show is done at his house. You rock up, well, you go down the night before, say, at the fantastic pub called The Fox, um, which is in Collie, Collie, Collie. And have a few Sherpas <laughs> uh, with, uh, with the lovely owner and his staff, and sometimes James and Lou. And then you do his program, and it's not too early. And he's he's just very good at organising stuff, so it makes it very easy. So everybody's very relaxed, and it goes, it just flies past. And it always got interesting guests, you know, uh, on on it as well. Honor Blackman was on because she, she's just passed away. I, yeah. I did, did it with her. And Jane Seymour, she was quite recent. Um, but lots of interesting people, yes. Uh, and you've also got your, um, actually I was going to say to you, speaking of Saturday morning TV, the Great Food Guys is getting repeated. Which you were on the first series with Doogie Vipon. That's that's networked now. That's good. And the second series is everybody's getting very excited about it. So uh, I, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that, but I, I sniffed something that is, has, has hit potential. Uh, whether it is or not, I don't know. We'll find out. But I think the timing is very good. There's not a lot. I mean, it, literally, we finished filming that um, as we went into lockdown. So it'll be one of the few freshly filmed programs. And they're, you know, they're suddenly they're talking about commissioning a third series, which is when they when they start talking about that, you know, you've got something quite good going on. So yes, yeah, so so series one, uh, good good guys with uh, wine expert, and that was oh. Yeah, yeah. Got got to drink a lot of uh, strong gin cocktails, which was great. Yeah, <laughs> during the day, during the day. I know. I, know, I was trying my best not to uh, whack them back. You were just trying to do dry January, wasn't? Weren't you? So it was like, okay. well, no, I did, I did, I did, I, I didn't crack. Yeah. And yeah, even even then, I didn't uh, crack a bottle open. Doogie Doogie cracked on the third day and had two glasses of red wine. I, I was. <laughs> I was uh, I was on the wagon for the whole thing. That's right, I forgot about that. Um, but but yeah, so 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 that's coming out, and there might be a bit more. Land was back on again, and obviously we can't do the food van, but we are talking about doing a virtual food van because um, Dougie actually lives down the street from me. Mm-hmm. He's two, three doors down. Um, so we're we're going to do a thing where I'll, I'll cook and he cooks along and follows it and. Our partners will film it on iPhones or GoPros, and uh, we'll see what happens. It could be interesting because I've seen Doogie, and it, he was he was good, but you could tell that he was still learning, especially trying to chop things. So it could be interesting yeah. viewing. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's a good pupil because he tries. Yeah, he, he, and he gets frustrated when he can't do it, which is brilliant because he's super competitive. And uh, just before the lockdown. We were around at his house and, he, and and I found his drum kit, which was set up for practicing in one of his back bedrooms. 
And I said, go on, give us a go. And he's going, no, no, you can't touch this. That's a problem. I said, go on, give us a go. And actually, it turns out, drumming's quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's got yeah. he's got that over you then. So you, I he... certainly have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so you've mentioned your cook school as well. What would you say is your most rewarding thing about the cook school? Uh, well, it's teaching people how to cook, passing on, you know, 35 years in the industry. You've, you've picked up quite a lot of stuff. Um, and it is very, very nice to empower people. And that's what you do. And I'm actually really quite excited for, you know, the cook school's future going forward, because I think the one thing that most people have learned from this lockdown is they could do with cooking a bit better. Mm. And it really has whetted people's appetites. So I, I, I can imagine that we'll have some new lockdown classes uh, coming on. I'm actually working on a couple of those at the moment. And it is, it, you know, Sometimes at the cook school, you go in the morning and, and, and there's a big group of people. It's 24 people and they're having their coffee and their shortbread and making small talk and it's all a bit nervousy. And then by sort of lunchtime, you know, they've, they've cooked their first course. They've done the mise en place for their other two courses. They've had a glass of wine and suddenly the whole place just erupts. You know, the volume doubles and everybody's, you know, getting into it. And by the end of the day, they're all kind of on cloud nine and, and, and going away, you know, saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I had no idea you could do this and that, like that. So that is, that's the real, you know, satisfaction of, of the cute school. And also, I know that what I'm teaching them, again, I take most of the classes now, I know what I'm teaching them is the best knowledge they'll get. And I, I'm a little concerned about some cook schools where, they maybe don't get the best knowledge. I love that up close and personal sort of thing that you get from from teaching people how to cook. And the, the funny, the funny hit of last year was we had a, an idea and said we'll do a one to one, three hours with me, one to one. It's very expensive, six hundred quid, and and it sold out. Boof! And that was some of the best fun I've had actually was the one to ones because two of them were chefs. And one of them we did 21 dishes in three hours. Oh, wow. One of them was a family from the USA and they wanted to, they were very wealthy and they wanted to come and experience the best Scotland. So they were staying at Glen Eagles and they traveled to distilleries and, you know, they'd been falcon and all this, that sort of stuff. And they came to this cook school and she, she was a massively keen cook. And they wrote us this beautiful letter actually saying that, you know, they loved Scotland, they loved everything, but nothing, nothing touched their experience at the cook school, you know, where they said they, the hospitality, the information, the, you know, and the cook school is pretty nice. It's a nice building at Lake of Teeth. Those are the things that I really, really enjoy. Thanks, Nick. What a fascinating career so far. Stay tuned for next cooking tip for this week. If you want a great beer, but don't want all the booze and calories, check out Genius Craft Lager. The UK's first light craft lager, Genius, is 3% ABV and 79 calories per can. Less than an apple. It's brewed with the finest Pilsner malts and three hop varieties. Perfect after a workout with a barbecue or after one of those lockdown days. Available in sparse stores across Scotland and online from Flavourly.com. Now from the kitchen to the drinks cabinet... As it's almost Father's Day, I spoke to father and son Billy and Alistair Walker about how whiskey has shaped their careers. Billy is a master blender who has worked with distilleries such as the Glendronach, Glenglassa and Benriach 
and is now co-owner of the Glenallachy. And Alistair owns and runs an independent whiskey bottling company called Infrequent Flyers, which I guess we all are right now. <laughs> Hi, it's Rosalind from The Scotsman. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, how are you? I'm okay, thanks. Yeah, just uh, how have you been getting on during the lockdown? Oh, it's been a challenge, but surprisingly, from the, the ongoing basis of the business, um, it's been actually okay. Uh, and we, we, we can see signs of uh, the other markets, Europe and, uh, and Asia, unquestionably are opening up again. So we are very encouraged that uh, there hasn't been too much damage to, to the selling side of our business. On the, on the production side, we, had, we took a decision um, to uh, close the distillery for a period of time. And we used that time to do what we normally call the kind of summer close-down work, uh, the, the maintenance work and all the kind of statutory and regulatory things we, from an engineering point of view that we have to do. The visitors spent in the shop uh, continue to be closed. We, we don't envisage much prospect. We, we keep talking about it and wondering how we can open the shop and indeed the centre, but we're not, we're, we're not uh, confident that um, that can be done easily. So we're kind of on the back foot in that one. But other than that, um, we have tried to uh, work around the, the, the circumstances and quite a lot of the people on the kind of the support side of the business are, are working from home. Uh, that seems to be going okay. So, I mean, it's been an unwelcome intrusion into where we want it to be. But by and large, it hasn't been as uh, as awful or drastic as we might have expected it could have been. I suppose one of the main things for the whiskey industry up in Speyside was the cancellation of Spirit at Speyside. Was that something that, I mean, I know that the visitors, your visitor centre at Glenallachie, that was kind of just newly opened last year for that, wasn't it? Was that was that a bit of a blow for you guys or is it just sort of kind of take it in your stride kind of thing? Well, no, listen, it's a blow for the, for the plan. Um, it's not just about, you know, selling through the shop, it's about exposing the brand the kind of wide sweep of people who come to the Spirit are quite knowledgeable, informed people. And uh, um, it's important that you can put the product and the brand in front of them and get a welcome response from them. Indeed, and hopefully they go away and they undertake some ambassadorial duties on behalf of the brand. So, yeah, look, the Spirit of Space is influential. It's an, it is an international um, event. It attracts a lot of people from the United Kingdom and indeed all over the world. So it's a shame that it didn't happen, but the reality is it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And what we've done and what creatively the sales people have done, that the things that we would have dedicated to the festival, we have made available, like, you know, special bottlings, we've made available to the local um, retailers. And that's been actually remarkably successful. The, the, uh, the exclusives and uh, the various uh, bottle your owners, they have sold out remarkably quickly. And it's kept, uh, you know, it's kept, that side of the business, uh, the kind of very boutique side of the business, has kept it in focus and uh, it's been helpful to us. And I think it's been very helpful to the, to the retailers. And as part of that, um, we, we were donating uh, so much per bottle, I think it was five pounds per bottle, to the Dr. Gray Hospital in Elgin. So all in all, it was 
we would have preferred everything was normal. It's not normal, so we try and make the most of it. You've been in the whisky industry for quite a long time. How have you seen trends um, and how people drink whisky change? I think it's, it's quite been quite stark recently, but have you have you seen it kind of change drastically over your your time? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I, I don't. Um, I think Andy can drink whisky the way they, they particularly want to drink it. I think actually the trend that's more important and more interesting is how rapidly the single malt category has grown in the last 15 years. When myself and my two South African partners started out on the journey to buy Ben Reich, you know, there were a significant number of malt distilleries mothballed. And I can remember one or two of my peers in the industry who are friends telling me, this is not the cleverest thing you're doing here, buying a distillery. And you can see that since 2004, how um, remarkably popular the single malt category has become, both in terms of volume and value. So I've seen a huge change. I'm not saying blended blended whiskey is extremely important and will continue to be extremely important. It's just fascinating to see the appetite that a lot of countries and people have to get to know single malt and uh, the various uh, players in the single malt game. Um, and you've mentioned blended whisky as well. Is there any kind of common misconceptions around um, blended malt? And do you think they're starting to change over the last few years? I think that will only change when uh, the big players in the industry like Nigel and Chivas really make a move. And, and I think they already have, they probably already think about it. Monkey Shoulder from William Grant has been, uh, in my opinion, very successful and and represents all that's good about what you can achieve with blended malt whisky. So, look, the category will grow. It just needs a bit more exposure and uh, and it will climb the barrier and uh, we will see what direction it goes in. But it's it, it's interesting and we certainly have an interest in it. And um, so you're a you're a master blender um, for Glenallachie and have been for uh, a while. If you had one piece of advice to give someone starting out about becoming a master blender, what would it be? Is it something that someone can learn to do or is it does it mix like experience with maybe like a natural ability for, I don't know, are you sort of thinking in your mind it's like you've got to be good at smelling the whiskey, tasting the whiskey, obviously, and that can seem quite daunting to someone, but is there any kind of tips you could give? I think there are people with uh, good organoleptic uh, skills but I think you can actually, I think you can grow into it. It helps if you're a non-smoker and uh, probably helps if you are, if you're a less than regular drinker. But I think a lot of it, a lot of it also is about understanding all the other characteristics and parts of the industry that go into making, making whiskey and then the process of maturing the whiskey, the styles of wood. I mean, if you're familiar with the expectation of what all of these things can do, it's a very important part of the master blender or the blender experience because there is a lot. There's a lot of things going on uh, in your mind about understanding what is behind what you've put together, and of course, it's expressed in, in terms of nosing and tasting. But I think if you if you understand how you've put the building blocks together and why, then it certainly helps, and, and that's experience, frankly. It certainly helps to become uh, to become a master blender. Would I encourage people to do it? Absolutely. Would I encourage people to be in this industry? Absolutely. It's a fantastic industry, and uh, there are many there are many uh, different roles in the industry that I very enjoy. 
And you're you're pretty well known um, in the whiskey industry. Do you find that helps or hinders your work in any way, like a little mini celebrity? <laughs> well, I don't see myself like that, but in truth, I've always worked um, with you know worked our own smaller smaller distilleries, and it's a it's it's kind of um, a different world because we're given the opportunity in, on a number of occasions, you know, with Ben Rieck and Ben Vilmack and and Ben Alkhead and Glasgow. We, we've got a blank canvas, so we are creating new new worlds and new brands for ourselves. Whereas a lot of people in the bigger the bigger companies, they, they have a much more difficult task of managing and protecting legacy brands. So the world that I occupy, is, I think, is quite an exciting world, and it's an interesting and an experimental world, and it's very fun. You know, looking after the bigger brands is equally great fun, but it's more it's a different world more challenging protecting what you have and uh, maybe enhancing it but yeah look it's a great industry and uh, you used to work with your son Alistair whereabouts did you work together and how long for oh we worked together for quite a long time he worked for me for a while at uh, Burns Stewart and in, in the selling side of the business it was a really interesting learning experience and, and indeed you know, it's a conversation we could have quite a long period of time because the, the Burns Stewart experience was, you know, I was part of the managing buyout team of that uh, of that company. Anyway, when the company was sold to um, Angasura, also uh, he decided to go and do a master's, an MBA at uh, one of the Glasgow universities, and uh, then I decided to start. I met these South African partners, um, Wayne. Uh, Keith Vetter and Jeff Bell, who were fantastic. But we, we, you know, we acquired Ben Riech. And, and when Alistair came out, he, we needed people. We needed people that we could depend on. And uh, so Alistair joined the business and he became the sales and marketing director over a period of time. And, and you know, it worked. Um, it was a period when a lot was going on. We were building up Ben Riech, got the opportunity to acquire Ben Dronach. And again, it gave us um, an incentive to take what was traditionally, or certainly historically, a fantastic distillery to give it back its status again and build it as an important brand. And in theory, he reported into me, it was very much, uh, you know, people that were in their own cohorts and they did their own things. Um, of course, he reported into to me, but he it wasn't, it was, you know, it was a business relationship. Uh, once you cross the threshold, uh, you weren't far on sun anymore. You were your colleagues. And yeah. And are you quite pleased that obviously your your work and your love of whiskey has um, influenced Alistair to, into this career path? Are you a family of whiskey lovers? Yeah, listen, I think what Alistair's doing, you know, when we sold the, the company to Brown Foreman, it was a good time for Alistair to go and do his own thing. There's nothing that focuses the mind more than having... Uh, your own skin in the game and uh, he's done it and he's you know I, I, I'm actually quite uh, impressed with what he's done with uh, in the frequent flyers and you learn a lot you know you learn so much about business when it's uh, with your own money and you're the only guy in the shop and you have to do everything and uh, do you have an ideal Father's Day gift in mind for Sunday since it's coming it's coming round quick <laughs> I'm going to pass on that one. Okay, <laughs> uh, okay. and um, 
just uh, finally, we have a, a part of the podcast which is called Desert Island Drinks, uh, which actually for whiskey people, it's usually Desert Island Jams. So if you could take three jams onto a desert island, what would they be and why? My goodness. Um, look, I would definitely take the Glenallochy 15-year-old. But if I'm only allowed to take one Glenallochy, it would be the 15-year-old. Um, I would take a Glendronach 15-year-old and uh, I would take one of the great blends, Johnny Walker Black. Nice. That's a good, that's a good range there. Yes, and um, I, it, none of it, none of them would disappoint. Uh, but thank you very much um, for your time. I'm just going to go off now and phone Alistair. That's okay. Thanks a lot. Okay, speak to you later. Bye, bye. Hello. Hi, is that Alistair? It is. Yes. Hi. Hi, hi it's Rosalind from the Scotsman. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, so I've just woken to your dad. Right. Which was, <laughs> was a nice conversation. Um, can you just tell me, um, growing up, was a love of whiskey something that was shared in the family? Like, what are, what's your earliest memory of whiskey? <laughs> one, one of the earliest memories, and it's not so much to do with a love of whiskey, but my dad used to work for Inverhouse Distillers, and they had a, they had a product called Pinwinnie, which I, I think was a blendy Scotch whiskey. I, I, I don't even know if it exists anymore but when he used to come in this this um the bottle came in a, a sort of purple velvet drawstring bag um which was amazing for keeping your marbles in <laughs> so uh but it wasn't i mean lo- loads of kids like at that time round about you know the kind of Airdrie and Coke Bridge sort of area seemed to have these pinwinny bags for keeping their, their their marbles in so that that was kind of one of my my first memories but we always had a lot of whiskey around about the house. I always find with with, with whiskey, it, it's a product that you, you sort of come to at a certain age. So so I, I started working with my dad back in 1997. I'd have been 20, 22 at that point. So I, I started, you know, personally drinking whiskey at that age. But most of my friends, it was probably once they get into their, their kind of late 20s, early 30s, before they started um, starting to, to experiment with you know, whiskey, single malts, that type of thing. So your dad's roles in the industry, is, is that what influenced your career? Like, did you just kind of look at that and think that's kind of what I want to get into? No, not really. I, uh, I'd, I'd been studying uh, mathematics at, at university and it's the usual thing. You come out with a degree, um, but you want to get some experience to put on your CV. And my dad, at, at the time, he was working at Barnes Stewart and he said, look, you can come and work at Barnes Stewart for a year and that will give you a year's experience to put on, on your CV. Um, so then whatever you want to do after that, that will help you to kind of go on and, and, and get a job somewhere. But I ended up staying there for, for six and a half years. So it's just kind of, I, I fell into it sort of by accident, but once I got into it, I really enjoyed it. And to me, it's it's one of those industries that it's a very, I mean, it's quite a lot of fun. It's very sociable. And I think that's why when people get into it, they, they tend not to leave it. And were you ever tempted to follow in his footsteps and become a master blender? Not really. Um, <laughs> I always I always liked, I always liked, it's funny because I've, I've always been in sales and marketing. It's only really in the last, the last couple of years. So I, I set my own, my own business up in, in 2018 as a, an, an independent bottler. And because I'm the only person in, in the company, I get to do everything, which means I'm now much more involved in, in working with the liquid as opposed to just selling the liquid. So 
it's my job to go out and source casks. It's my job to decide if we're going to do wood finishes with, with different types of casks. So I'm now more involved in the, the production side than I was before. But I'm, I'm not yet at the stage where I am the person who actually makes the whiskey. Maybe one day. But um, there's so many other parts to it that are, are fun to be involved in. And when you're looking at casks and finishes and stuff, do you ever just phone them up and be like, can I just quickly ask you about this? Or do you kind of know within yourself like what you're looking for? I know myself, but there's certainly no harm in getting a, a second opinion. Especially, you know, when, when, when I first started this a couple of years back and I'd, I'd bought, you know, some casts and there was a whole bunch of samples that I was looking at and I gave my, my dad a call and said look do you want to come and have a look at these tell me what you think of them and also you know what what, what type of if I was going to put that into a, a finishing cast what, what sort of cast do you think that particular whiskey would work with so early doors he you know it's always good to get a second opinion but he's pretty busy and I, I just I just crack on, on with it myself most of the time one of the key things um, that have changed in, in sort of attitudes towards whiskey is it just sort of an interest more in flavour or do you think it's like completely changed from back in the day when it was seen to be like this kind of old man's drink that you can really touch because there's like cocktails and you know all that kind of thing there's a, a much younger market opening up it's definitely changed um, I mean when I when I started working at, at Barn Stewart back in 1997 it, it was more of a blended scotch whiskey market you know single malt was nothing that the category wasn't nothing like it is at the moment um single malts basically their sole purpose at that time was almost just to be the ingredients for for blended scotch and you're, you're right it was definitely seen as a, a very traditional old man's drink i i think it started changing probably around about 2006 2007 i, I can't really put my finger on what what caused that for years the whiskey industry had been trying to change their their consumer base a little bit because they they knew that you know if if it carried on being an old man's drink ultimately their their, their customer base was was going to disappear at some point Mm -hmm. and it seemed that for no particular reason single malt started to become popular you know we we were going to whiskey festivals and you were you were seeing the demographic of, of people that were coming to those events was changing it was a younger audience. There was more women coming, and the questions that people were asking were 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 so detailed. And you know, obviously, people had gone away and done a little bit of research, um, and people started really trying to drill into the what is it that makes a, a single malt whiskey taste the way it does. And now that there's this, you know, this huge base of of very knowledgeable consumers out there, and I think that it's that that the ability to learn and to get access to information. You know, the internet has really helped with all of this because people can go on and, and ask questions and share information with with fellow enthusiasts. So it, ha- it has evolved dramatically, and the producers. The distillers, the independent bottlers, they are totally aware of, of what their customers are saying and what what they're looking for. So they, they you know, if sherry casks are popular, people will start putting whiskey in sherry casks. It's it's that that type of thing. And do you have a favourite whiskey? Yeah, well, it, it, that's a tricky one because uh, there's there's so many there's so many out there. But I do have from my days at Benrick, I was very happy when we we purchased the Glendronach Distillery. Um, so Glendronic was always known it, it was synonymous with being a, a whiskey that 
focused heavily on, on sherry cask maturation. And they had an 18-year-old, it still exists today, they have this 18-year-old product called Allardyce. Oh yeah, and that was my that that's that's that just became my my go to whiskey, and I still I still have a I've got a decanter at home that that is always got Allardyce in it. So if if I'm looking for a dram, that that's kind of my first my first choice. And since we've kind of um, talked a bit about your dad, did you have any Father's Day gift ideas for anyone that's still looking? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can tell you that my my dad is one of the most difficult people to to buy for. But he wouldn't answer. I asked him what he, he wanted for Father's Day, and he wouldn't answer. I thought he would at least say one of his own whiskies. <laughs> well, that, the problem is he's got. It's, it's very hard to buy him whiskey because he's he's got he's got so much of it already. Yeah, he does he does quite like wine. But yeah, if anyone can give me any tips on what I should get my dad, that 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 would. Uh, you see, he's he's a bit of a workaholic, which means he doesn't play golf. Um, his hobby is his work, which kind of restricts your your choices when it comes to, to buying gifts, I have to say. Yeah, I can't help you because he wouldn't answer. <laughs> he wouldn't answer so. <laughs> I'm surprised he even knows it's Father's Day, to be honest, um, coming up. I'm, I don't know if anybody knows what day it is, to be honest, <laughs> right now. <laughs> and if you could buy any um, any cash from any distillery and if money was no object, what, what would you go for? Well, that's an easy one. And it's actually the same answer um, as I gave to the to the favourite bottle. I I would love to bottle a cask of Glendronach, and that that is actually something that is probably going to be almost impossible to achieve. It's a very hard whisky to get in cask format, um, and it's partly it's our own fault because when when we bought the distillery in two thousand and eight, we didn't sell any Glendronic to anybody. We kept all of the stock for our own use, which means that in the last 12 years, there's been no Glendronic casks released to third-party sources from the distillery, which means that anything that was out there, sitting with other owners, is is, is probably gone by now. So you very rarely see a a Glendronic appear on the market. I'd love to to get one. Um, it's, It's on my bucket list. Part of the podcast um, has some quick fire questions, which are all about food. Uh, it's five questions. Um, and if you can just tell me the first thing that comes into your head, if that's okay. Okay. Uh, whenever I'm hungry, I think of? Uh, fish and chips. Comfort food for me is? Curry. My favourite childhood dessert is? Oh, uh, knickerbocker glory. My food heaven is? Food heaven. Wow. No, you're taught. Um, probably Italian. Anything Italian. And my food hell is uh, probably lettuce. I just don't see the point of it. That's fair enough. <laughs> Thank you very much. Cheers. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Later. Bye. Thanks so much to Billy and Alistair. I still think a master blender is the dream job. Imagine being paid to drink whiskey. That'd be absolutely amazing. And good luck with your dad's Father's Day gift, Alistair. He certainly wouldn't tell me what he wanted. Now let's jump back into the kitchen for our next cooking tip this week. My name is Nick Nairn and these are my cooking tips for scrand listeners. So to make pasta dough, you could either use ordinary bread flour or you could use Italian tipo double zero flour, which is slightly better, a little bit trickier to use. 200 grams of flour, sifted, one whole egg, medium, three yolks, medium, and work that together until you get a really tight dough. It should be like plasticine. Most people make it too wet. They can't, they don't have the strength to get it uh, uh, really tight. Wrap that in cling film and rest it for at least 30 minutes before you use it. 
Finally, here's my lockdown food and drink of choice, which you can try at home. Hello and welcome back to my kitchen in Glasgow. Since the last episode, I've tried a few more takeaway options, including a three-course meal from 88 in Partick. It's a really nice small restaurant that you can kind of see into the kitchen from the road. Um, so they're obviously one of the ones that might struggle a wee bit to open up, but they've just recently started doing an at-home service. So it's collection only and they opened up late last year and it's one of those ones I've been thinking, I really should go there. It looks amazing. It's got good write-ups and I've never actually had the time. So it was nice to try their food at home. Um, it was easy to cook. You just had to heat a few things up and I had a lovely fresh salad with like crujettes and sun-dried tomatoes followed by spring vegetable pasta and pesto and then a buttermilk and rhubarb and elderflower dessert. So very seasonal, really tasty, really fresh. For meat eaters, there was a pork and saffron kind of bolognese for the pasta, which looked good, although I don't really like saffron. But anyway, if, if you don't mind that, it, it looked good. On the cooking front, I've been making Nadia Hussein's spinach and paneer catty rolls, which are quick and easy and really tasty. I'll post the recipe for them on the Intel site. And I've been using halloumi in place of paneer because I've not been able to find that. And I sort of, I like the, the texture and the flavour of halloumi and it really brings quite a lot to the spinach, which obviously can be a bit, sometimes a bit tasteless. Um, I'm still making the American oat cookies I mentioned, I think maybe in the last episode, um, because now I can go and visit other households uh, and stand in the garden. I've taken them round to my sister's and it turns out my nephew really likes them. So I'm absolutely delighted at that and uh, it's keeping a family recipe going, so that's great. I'm also keen to try cinnamon rolls, so if anyone's got any good recipes for that, just let me know on Twitter. I'm at Rosalind Erskine. On the drink side of things, I've enjoyed more at-home tastings, including a craft gin night with Jero Designs and a host of Lanarkshire gin producers like McLean's Gin and the Wee Farm Distillery. You can read more about that on the Scotsman Food and Drink. And I've also done a little wine tasting and a Wines of the Unexpected tasting with Diana Thompson of Wine Events Scotland. Diana was also a guest on Scran a good few episodes ago. I think it was the last of season one way back when we could be in the office um, and that's a really good listen if you're a wine fan she talks about wine pairings and good supermarket buys so her, her tastings are always worth it if you can get in because they sell out quite quickly drinks I've been enjoying at home um, well it was World Gin Day on the 13th which is a good excuse to have a G&T but what I've been enjoying a lot recently thanks to a virtual Negroni masterclass which took place in New York and was streamed to a few people is a Negroni incidentally <laughs> Just a classic, Agna classic Negroni is great, but I've actually made it, tried to make it as Scottish as possible. So I've got an Edinburgh seaside gin, which ties in well with the seafood theme. And a Valencian, I hope I'm saying that right, vermouth, which is Italian-Scottish fusion vermouth. So it's created in the Scottish borders by the Tate brothers, and it uses zesty Italian wine enriched with a strong Scottish malt barley spirit. So it's just really easy to make. You can get them in most bars. It is equal parts of everything, gin, campari and vermouth. And you just stir it and serve over ice, which is what I'm going to do now. So you can stir it in the glass, but I've got a cocktail shaker here. So just grab some ice. Then it's equal parts. So it's the vermouth. Campari. And then last but not least, the gin. We're going for two shots of gin. <laughs> then you just get a, a spoon and a bar spoon, which is a long one, and stir it. And then just pour that into a glass. And enjoy, cheers. 
Thanks again to my guests Nick Nairn and Billy and Alistair Walker and thanks to you for listening to another episode of Scran. I'll be back on the 3rd of July to tuck into Scottish seafoods. Until then, please rate and review us. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast and remember to follow me on Twitter at Rosalind Erskine. Like any foodie, a five-star review is what we're after, so please get rating Scran. This is a laudable production and you can get Scran wherever you download your podcasts. But for interactive content, including guest pictures and other related links, download the Entail app, which is available on Android and Apple. This episode was presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Morvan McIntyre.